0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon, taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or about the Christian faith, I'd be glad to talk to you about those. You can call in and ask those questions. If you see things differently from the way I do, you're welcome to call and uh, disagree with me. We've been doing this for daily for 27 years. Can you believe that? It's amazing. Um, so. There's been a lot of calls, a lot of questions, and, uh, and a lot of disagreements, too. And that's, that's what makes this interesting for me. Interesting so much, in fact, that I don't look forward to weekends. We have a weekend coming up now, but I actually don't like weekends that much because I don't get to to do this, and I enjoy doing this so much. But, uh, but we, have, we have good things on the weekends, too, sometimes. Actually, this is the first day of another month, March, and that being so... We have coming up after the weekend, actually in the midweek next week, our Zoom meeting, which is on the first Wednesday of every month, and uh, that's in the evening, 7 in the evening Pacific time, although people in any time zone can join us. If you're interested in that, that's usually a couple hours of Q&A, and you're welcome to join us for that. Go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, and you'll find out how to log in for that. That's next Wednesday or I guess I should say this Wednesday, coming up. <clears throat> and we're nothing else to announce, so I'm going to go to the phones and talk to Michael from Inglewood, California. Michael, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling.
1: Wow, well, first. Okay, Steve. I had a question I heard uh, last week. Someone that said in your book, um, Jesus won't be living in heaven anymore. After he returns, he'll live on the new earth. And so... I have a two-part question. The first one is, those that are dead in Christ, sorry, those who are alive, who will be called to meet him, will they ever get to go to heaven? And then the second question is, those who have already passed, because of John 14, 2 and 3, it seems like uh, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place also in my Father's house or many mansions, it would seem like they're not in heaven already because he's going to prepare that place. So are they already in heaven if they pass? And then the first question, of course, will the dead, and will those who remain be able to go to heaven?
0: Well, okay, yeah, thank you for your call. Um, well, I, I, as far as I know, when Jesus comes back, if we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, we're, as I said, uh, you know, I think you heard me say previously, uh, I don't believe we're going to heaven from there. I think we're going to be coming with Jesus. He's coming here. That's where he's going. The direction he's coming is uh, vertically downward to earth. And we're caught up to meet him in the air to meet him, to accompany him, and to, uh, you know, as it were, like a welcoming committee. We join him on the remaining leg of his journey. In that case, there's no reason for us to have to go up to heaven. And uh, and I don't have any reason to believe that we will. Uh Heaven is not really made for people. Uh, ha- heaven, according to Scripture, is made for man. Heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's. It says in Psalm 115, verse 16, but the earth he has made for the sons of men. So, uh, you know, if Jesus comes here, uh, we don't have to uh, spend any time in heaven at all. But, but what would be the attraction? I mean, God and Jesus are going to be here with us. Uh, there wouldn't be much in heaven to attract me once Jesus is here. Uh, the only attraction of heaven right now is that that's where Jesus is. If I die right now, I do I do expect my soul would go to be with Him in heaven, because I plan to be forever with Him from from this point in my life, beyond death and then beyond the resurrection. I plan to be with Him forever. And so, uh, yeah, I don't I don't know any reason why we would go to heaven if uh, if we meet the Lord in the air and we uh, accompany Him back to the new earth. That's at least I don't know of anything in the Scripture that says we would, and I can't think of any reason that would be particularly uh, desirable. Now, John 14, uh, in my opinion, when it talks about in my Father's house are many mansions, I don't believe that's referring to heaven. Um, there's no place in the entire Bible that heaven is referred to as God's house. Although God having a house is mentioned many times in the Bible, it's just not heaven. Uh, in the Old Testament, the house of the Lord is always either the tabernacle that Moses built or the temple that Solomon built or, or the temple that was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. In other words, the house of God in the Bible is always God's habitation among people on earth. It's true that God lives in heaven, but that's, that's saying nothing. He lives everywhere. He's, he's omnipresent. So God is in heaven, but he's also on earth. But the, when we read the expression, the house of God, We're always, as far as I know, I don't know of any exceptions in the Bible, talking about where God dwells among men uh, on earth. And so it was the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. And even when Jesus came, it was still the temple. Remember in John chapter 2, which is in the same book as John 14, Jesus said, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. He was referring to the temple. His father's house was the temple. But of course, in the New Covenant, the Father's house is us. We are it says in First Peter 2: five, we're living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Uh, in Ephesians two, the closing verses of Ephesians two tells us that we are being built into holy habitation through the spirit, a temple of God. Uh, Paul tells the Corinthians in First Corinthians 3:16 and in second Corinthians 6:16, 6, he tells them, "Do you not know you are the temple of God?" Um, in First Peter chapter three and verse 15. Paul says, if I'm delayed, I want you to know how to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, he said. So uh, there's nowhere in the New Testament that the house of God is a physical temple anymore, other except for it's, it's the temple of, of uh, the body of Christ made of living stones. But even there, the temple is never, uh, I should say the house of God, is never referred to as heaven. Uh, there just isn't anywhere in the Bible that the the word uh, the expression "house of God" refers to heaven. So when Jesus said, in my father's house are many uh, dwelling places, is how it reads in the in the Greek. Uh, well, then of course his house, if he's talking about heaven there, it's the only place in the entire Bible that he is talking about heaven when he uses that expression. So it'd be we'd really have to have some kind of confirmation that that's what he means when, in fact, the term my Father's house already has an established meaning. And that is where God dwells among people. Now, when he said, In my father's house are many dwelling places, the word that is used there, that's translated mansions in the King James Version, or dwelling places in most translations, or rooms in some translations, uh, that word is found only one other place in the Bible, and that is later in that same chapter, in John fourteen twenty-three, where Jesus said that the person who uh, has his commandments and keeps them, is the one who loves him. And he says about that person, about us, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him, and we, meaning the father and I, will come uh, to him and make our home with him. Now, the word home there is the same word that's translated mansions in verse uh, you know, 2 in the King James and the New King James. Or more properties should be rendered rooms or dwelling places. In my Father's house are many rooms. And he says, and if you love me and keep my commands, you'll be one of them. My Father and I will come and make our room in you, with you. So the Father's house is the church, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it is made up of many individuals who each is a dwelling place of God. Every one of us who's a Christian is a dwelling place of God. And that's what he has. There's many dwelling places in his house. His house is corporately the church. Uh, Now, Jesus said he was going away to prepare a place for us. Uh, He didn't mean he's going away to prepare a place for us far from here. He's going away to prepare a place for us in his house. When Jesus went away, a few verses later, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So what he's talking about there is I'm going away. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to come down. Through him, my Father and I are going to dwell with you. And you are going to be dwelling places that comprise my Father's house, the new temple. The new temple is going to be the body of Christ, the church. And it's because I'm going away and sending the Spirit. He will give you a place in my body. He'll give. He'll create a place for you in this structure. That place is defined by the Holy Spirit's placement of every person. And so there's really nothing in that passage that, specifically mentions heaven. I realize that for those who've never heard this before, it could be, I don't know, it, it might be a mind blower. But I, And you don't have to agree, by the way. I mean, there's no one, no one on the planet has to agree with what I'm saying. However, everyone who would like to know the truth should probably check out and see if what I'm saying is true. And once you find that it is, you probably will agree with me. But if you don't, that's fine, too. So uh, there's no reference to heaven there. Uh, I mean, Jesus did say he's going away, and by implication, we know he was going away to heaven, but he didn't say he was going to his father's house. He said he's going away, that is, to heaven, in order to prepare places for each of his disciples to be part of and, and dwelling places in this house that his father has on earth, the church. And, of course, much of it is in heaven now because many people of the church have died and gone to heaven. But he dwells among men on earth in his church, and that's, uh, that's, I believe, what he's talking about there. Once again, if you, if you don't find that persuasive once you look into it, then obviously I would suggest you reach a different conclusion than I have. But, uh, but you should check it out. Uh, it might make you very unpopular, and I don't really wish that upon you, but I think we need to be more concerned about truth than popularity. But I hope, that's, I hope that kind of answers your question. Thank you. Uh, Jimmy from Missouri is next. Welcome to the narrow path, Jimmy.
2: Hi, Steve. Thanks for taking my call. <clears throat> I'm um on millennial, but I have my question is is with regard to the historic premillennial versus the dispensational premillennial view. I'm trying to discern what the what the primary difference is between those two camps with regard to what they believe is going to be happening in uh, uh, the future. Well, they think it's obviously a millennium after Christ returns. Right. I'm trying to discern what the difference is that they think is
0: going to happen in that millennium. Well, of course, the historic premillennial view, which was held by many of the early church fathers, uh, has a lot in common, but not everything in common, with the dispensational premillennial view. Um, Well, what it does have in common, is that they both believe that Jesus is coming here to set up a temporary kingdom of a thousand years. When that is over, there will be the eternal new heavens and new earth. But but the premillennial view believes that when Jesus comes back, he's not setting up the eternal order. He's setting up a temporary order that will only last a thousand years. and uh, And that he will reign on earth with his people, but also with a lot of the devil's people. They believe that during the millennium there will be people on earth who are not believers, and that's why they believe at the end, when Satan is loosed for a little while, these unbelievers will be uh, uh, fomented to come as a as a group against Jesus and against His people in the beloved city. So, during the thousand years, premillennialists believe that Jesus will be on earth reigning uh, with Christ, with His saints. In the beloved city, and but there will be unbelievers too, an immense number, because when Satan is loose at the end of Revelation twenty, or at least in verse seven, actually, it says that he gathers all the nations against the beloved city, and their number is like the sand of the seashore. So we've really got during the millennium, a lot of unbelievers, a lot of um, you know rebels against God, uh, but but they would say. That during this time, Jesus reigns the world with a rod of iron, an expression they get from Psalm chapter 2. And that means that even though the majority of the world is not happily submitted to him, they are forcibly submitted to him for a thousand years. So even though Jesus didn't choose to do anything like that, that is force compliance upon unwilling people to his kingdom when he was here, they believe that when he comes back, he'll be of a different Mind and different spirit entirely. He's going to be the type to really force his way upon people who are not believers and don't want him. But eventually, uh, for some reason, once Satan is loosed again, they believe somehow Jesus' rod of iron will—I don't know if it's going to be melted down and he won't have it anymore or whatever—but the enemy will then be able to bring all these people against him. Now, both views, <coughs> premillennial and dispensational, uh, you know, historic premillennial and dispensational premillennial, hold that view. Now, uh, how they differ is that the dispensationalists see the millennium as the ultimate fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believe that God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that have never been fulfilled, and particularly promises he made to David, because God told David that his seed would sit forever on his throne after him, after he's dead, when he's dead. (coughs) And therefore, they believe, well, Jesus never has done that, so he'll do that during the, the millennium. However, it's very difficult to know why uh, why Jesus reigning on David's throne in the millennium would be prophesied in the Old Testament as being forever and ever, with no end. Because a thousand years, though it's actually quite long, does have an end. And yet every time the Bible talks about the Messiah sitting on David's throne, it says forever, without end. Uh, so that's, that, it becomes a, a question, of course. But um, also, of course, I believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus already sits on the throne of David at the right hand of God, that those promises made to David have been fulfilled by the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God, and therefore they don't remain to be fulfilled. We can easily check the two, uh, you know, biblically, uh, the two two options there. Does Jesus sit on the throne of David now, or is he going to have to sit on it uh, for a thousand years, uh, you know a temporary reign, uh, well, according to second Samuel chapter seven uh, where the the very first instance of this promise is given to David, here's what God said to him in second samuel seven twelve When your days are fulfilled, David, and you rest with your fathers, that means when you're dead, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. And it goes on to say, I'll set up his his kingdom will be forever in verse 13. Now, when will God do this? Well, when David is dead, when David's days are fulfilled and he's resting with his fathers, meaning he's he's in his tomb. So if Jesus hasn't done this yet and he's going to do this after he comes back, well, isn't David going to be raised from the dead then? Aren't the righteous going to be raised when Jesus comes back? The Bible says they will be. That means David will be raised. That means David won't be resting in his tomb at that time. So Jesus will not be reigning on David's throne while David is resting with his fathers, but only after he's resurrected, if premillennialism is true. However, it's interesting on the day of Pentecost, when Peter was preaching and trying to point out to the Jews that God had made these promises to David and had now fulfilled them in Christ, he said, our father David is dead and his tomb is with us to this day. That's what he says in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. In other words, he's saying the conditions for the Messiah to be reigning on David's throne are present now. David is in his tomb. David is resting with his fathers. The very thing the prophet said would be the case when the Messiah sits on his throne. He's saying, And then he goes on to say, Therefore, let the house of Israel assuredly know that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That is, he's enthroned him. He's, he's the Messiah now. And uh, he's the king now. So, you know... The premillennial view that holds, uh, that is the dispensational premillennial view, holds that the promises that are made to David will be fulfilled. And the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be fulfilled. Even though the Bible says those things have all been fulfilled already by Jesus at his first coming and his ascension and his glorification, those have been fulfilled. Uh, dispensations say, no, they have not. They've been postponed. And they'll be fulfilled in the millennium. Now, the historic premillennials did not necessarily believe that. The dispensationalists believe that in the millennium, the temple will be built again. The Jewish sacrifices will be offered again, and they'll be administered by priests who are Levites after the order of Aaron. In other words, it'll be the Old Testament again. The Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament priesthood, and so forth. But the book of Hebrews says there won't be any more of that anymore. Jesus offered the final sacrifice once and for all. He is priest forever after a different order, and has therefore rendered the Levitical order obsolete. So uh, the dispensationalists really run up against the Bible a lot. Well, they run up especially against, although their, their view doesn't go with the Old Testament very well either, since David's not, you know, won't be resting with his fathers at that time. So that's an Old Testament prediction. But but they really go against the New Testament because the New Testament that continually says all these things have been fulfilled. Dispensationalists say no, they haven't been, and they will be in the millennium. So that's why that's why you know the first 1800 years, even the historic premillennialists didn't believe this dispensational stuff because the Bible's too clear. Christians until the 1800s actually believed the New Testament was the final revelation of God, and the Old Testament was the inferior revelation. Uh, Dispensationalists, on the other hand, say no, we need we need to take the Old Testament at face value and force New Testament verses to fit into the paradigm that we create from the Old Testament. And that's the main difference between dispensationalism and historic Christianity in general. Now, I... Are you still there, Steve? Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, thank you. I, I And I understand all the pitfalls with dispensational premillennialism, but I guess what I'm trying to figure out is why a, why a person who's a historic premillennialist, and I have some friends who are, and they... they they constantly disparage dispensationalism, and I understand why. But my question yeah. is always, well, really, what's the difference between your view and the dispensational view? In the sense that you still hold out for a future 1,000-year millennial reign. But what does the historic premillennialist think is going to happen during that reign? They, they, they recognize that Christ brought the kingdom. It's, it's already here, but not right. fully realized.
0: Yeah, Ger- George, Eldon Ladd, George Eldon Ladd is a good example of a historic premillennialist. He, you know, he writes almost the same things about the kingdom of God that an amillennialist does. In fact, uh, there's a book that came out back in the probably, I guess, maybe in the 70s or 80s. I guess it was the 70s, called The Meaning of the Millennium. And it's four views written by four different authors. Uh, Robert G. Klaus was the editor he also wrote the uh, forward to my book on the four views of Revelation, but uh, four different authors argue different views. One's the dispensational view, one's the historic premillennial view, one's the amillennial, and one's the postmillennial view. And I, George Eldon Ladd wrote the chapter on the uh, historic premillennial view, and his entire chapter sounded like he was arguing for amillennialism. He was saying, you know, Israel, uh, it, it, the fulfillment is in the church, uh, these things, and so forth and so on. And... He was talking just like an amillennialist. And at the end of his article, he said, so you probably wonder why I'm a premillennialist if I'm saying all this stuff. And he said, well, he said, I, I agree with the amillennialists about a lot of things, but I just can't get over the fact that Revelation 20 said there will be a thousand-year reign. In other words, he couldn't get over the fact, uh, he couldn't get over taking Revelation 20 literally. And that's probably the way that historic premillennialists have always been, because I've never actually heard them. Uh, give much of a rationale for why there needs to be a millennium. I mean, why should, there, why should that be necessary? They, what they think they believe is that there will be a thousand years of, uh, of peace and righteousness under Christ's reign on earth before the new heavens and new earth. They don't have the dispensational ideas of the temple and the animal sacrifices and the fulfillment of the promises to David and, and the patriarchs because they recognize those already have been fulfilled, and there's no more of that to hear them. But they, but they do take Revelation 20 literally, and uh, that, I think, is their, their main weakness. Uh, the assumption that that chapter, unlike all the other chapters in Revelation, is to be taken literally. Uh, now, when I say unlike all the other chapters, they would probably take some of the other chapters literally too, but they take a great deal of Revelation non-literally. But they simply can't get over the hurdle of a literal interpretation of chapter 20 for some reason. So that's that's their big problem. I think all they expect is there will be a righteous kingdom here under Christ for a thousand years after he comes back, which will then later be followed by the new heavens and new earth. Why is this necessary? Well, it doesn't really have any rationale that, that comes up in their theology that I know of um, that they can explain. Maybe, maybe they can. Maybe they can call and tell us because I'm not aware of any. But I think they just see it as, well, it's got to happen because that's in Revelation. And I think they... I personally think they misunderstand that chapter. Of course, thank you for your call. Let's talk to uh, Kurt from Montana. Kurt, welcome.
3: Yeah, hi Steve. Um, I was listening to your
0: teaching on Romans that's online,
3: uh, which I really appreciate. And you were in Romans chapter one verse four, where you talked about Jesus being uh, proven to be the Son of God with power when, at His resurrection, mm-hmm. and So then then I think that relates, as far as I can tell, to Romans chapter 8, where he talks about our adoption, where we have the redemption of our bodies. So that would be Mm -hmm. at our physical resurrection. We kind of enter into that same kind of power and glory, I I guess, is how Mm -hmm. I take that. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I'm actually studying. I've got another (laughs) preterist, millennial-type question here. Uh, studying through Revelation with a friend, and, and he's thinking that since he, he's, uh, we're, we're both kind of leaning towards a partial preterism, Um he's kind of thinking that since we already have, you know, Jesus said he would rule the, with the rod of iron, it says that in, uh, Psalm 2, as you mentioned, that somehow we, we then should be really walking in some sort of really strong authority right now, uh, almost, I'm not
0: sure what exactly he thinks we should be doing, but, he thinks we're missing it. Okay, well I'll say this: I have a chapter about that in my book, Empire of the Risen Son, book one. One of its one chapter is called "The Authority of Christ's Followers." Uh, it's a chapter. First is the, the authority of Christ is one chapter, and then then uh, I think the authority of his servants. I, I forget the exact title, but it's it's right after that. And I talk about that. Yeah, Christians do have authority over demons and over the power of sin in their lives and things like that. Unfortunately, a lot of people think that we should have authority over other people or over the elements or something like that. That's not necessarily. That doesn't necessarily follow. Uh, Jesus exhibited power and miracles and things like that that not every Christian has. And those who think that we should be living in that kind of demonstration of miracles and power all the time are, I think they have a... a, a a more fully realized eschatology than than the Bible actually encourages. I think we still are at war here. Jesus is the victor, but we're mopping up for him, and we're still on the battlefield. And therefore, there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of uh, martyrdom, there's a lot of uh, trials, and we're and we're being made mature through them. And therefore, we don't walk in the kind of authority where we just kind of make all bad things go away through Morax's power. I'm afraid I'm out of time. I wish I wasn't. I have another half hour coming up. Don't go away. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. I'll be right back.
4: In a 16 lecture series entitled The Authority of Scriptures, Steve Gregg not only thoroughly presents the case for the Bible's authority, but also explains specifically how this truth is to be applied to a believer's daily walk and outlook. The Authority of Scriptures, as well as hundreds of other stimulating lectures, can be downloaded in MP3 format without charge from our website, thenarrowpath.com.
0: Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. If you'd like to join us and you have a question about the Bible or something like that you'd like to bring up, you can do that. The number to call is 844-484-5737. Our next caller is Paul who's calling from Colorado. Paul, welcome. Steve,
1: hi. Can you hear me okay?
0: Yes. Go ahead, please.
1: Okay, the Book of Ezekiel, chapter.
0: Hello. Oh, you're cutting out. I'm sorry. You just said Book of Ezekiel, chapter, and then you cut out. I haven't heard anything since then. Are you still there?
3: Chapter thirty-seven
0: thirty seven okay thirty seven mm-hmm. Can you get and, in a better uh, place where your phone works better? Can you get someplace where your phone uh, actually works?
1: It's it's, just, it's a rough day, Steve. I'll just have to call you back another time.
0: Well, can you just ask my your closest. questions and i'll try to I'll try to answer it if you can uh if you can okay, speak. I'll try to get it out to you Ezekiel thirty seven
3: uh, verse twenty six an everlasting peace is the subtitle in my Bible it's a James. Can you hear me okay?
0: I've heard that part. Yes, go ahead. And
3: moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply in the midst of them forever. Twice. The tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their foundation, and they shall know that I. I... Listen,
0: I'll tell you. What, I'll tell you what. You're, you're you're breaking up. I can read the passage. Can you ask me the question? Yeah. I'll read the question. Um, I'll read the passage. You, you ask the question. Go ahead.
3: So, so this, this seems like to me, this is definitely talking about Israel. But there's so much conflict going on between the all list and distance and as far as the, this, how to understand all this stuff. It's just very confusing. It's about as clear as mud for me.
0: Okay. Well, I'll talk uh, about that. Can,
3: can you clear that up? Okay. Thank you.
0: Okay, Paul. Thanks. Yeah, bad bad connection there. Yeah, Ezekiel chapter 37 is a passage that goes into the matter of the the uh, the kingdom of God under the Messiah, and the dispensational. Let me put it this way: the difference between the premillennial and the amillennial view is that the premillennial view holds that this kingdom will be established at Jesus' second coming, and that it's roughly. Uh, coextensive with the millennium, that this, the kingdom in this passage, they would say, and many passages, uh, are referring to the millennium. <clears throat> now, the millennium, of course, meaning a thousand years, is only found in one passage in the Bible, that's in Revelation 20, but there's lots of passages in the Old Testament that people would say, well, that's about the millennium. They don't; Those passages don't say it's a thousand years, but they would equate it. It's the kingdom passages. The Old Testament prophets have a lot of kingdom passages. And the dispensationalists believe that those kingdom passages apply to the time that Jesus will inaugurate when he comes the second time. Uh, Historic Christianity always taught that Jesus inaugurated his kingdom when he came the first time. And that these are talking about the order that has come into being since Jesus uh, arrived, since Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Now, let me just look at, I'll, I'll read those verses you did, but let me let me read this in verse 24. You were reading verses, uh, what, 26 and following. Let's start at verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, that is Israel, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, And their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Okay, so several things here. God is doing this for Israel. But we have to understand, the prophets, when they talk about what God's going to do to Israel, are talking about what he's going to do for the believing Israel, for Jews who believe. Judas Iscariot was part of Israel, but he's he's got no part of this. Caiaphas was part of Israel, he's got no part of this. Unbelievers who reject Christ in Israel are not part of this. It's the believing in Israel. Now, the thing is that that was always true. God's promises in the Old Testament are always for the believers in Israel, not just for the whole nation. Because the whole nation, or most of the nation in many cases, was pretty much apostate, worshipping Moloch, worshipping Baal. They had to be wiped out. Uh, However, there was a believing remnant. And all the promises of God in the Old Testament to Israel belonged to the believing remnant of Israel. And when Jesus came, that believing remnant of Israel came to him. And the rest of them rejected him and even crucified him. But the believing remnant are the ones to whom these promises are fulfilled. Now, we call that believing remnant the disciples of Jesus. They called themselves, in the New Testament, they called themselves the ecclesia, the church, which was a term that was used for Israel in the Old Testament. And so the believing remnant of Israel who became followers of Jesus are the ones to whom this is fulfilled. Now when it says, David, my servant, shall be king over them, in verse 24, and then in verse 25, my servant David shall reign over them, be their prince forever. Notice it's not a thousand years. This is forever. This is permanent. He's exalted forever as king, and never gonna, never gonna stop being that. Now, David here refers to the Messiah. And we know this, because the, the term David becomes, in the scripture, a term for the Davidic uh, dynasty. We see this, for example, when Solomon's son Rehoboam, uh, you know, increased the taxes over the ten uh, tribes to the north, and they rejected his rulership. And they said, see to your own house, David. Now, David was dead, but his grandson was the king, and they called him David. Why? Because the dynasty was called David. And Jesus is of that dynasty. David is ruling over us. David, that is his dynasty, in the person of his present and permanent heir, Jesus, is reigning. And notice it says in verse 24, and they shall have one shepherd. Now, that sounds like what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said, I have other sheep you don't know about, referring to the Gentiles. He, He was talking to the remnant of Israel, his disciples. He says, now there's other sheep in this flock, too. Not just you, the remnant of Israel, but I've got Gentiles coming in too. And I will bring them also, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That is to say, the Jews and Gentiles who follow Christ will be one flock, and there will be only one shepherd. And that's what it says here. They will all have one shepherd. It says in verse 28, the nations, meaning the Gentiles, will know him. So, I mean, there's Gentiles and Jews in this. Now, it does say they'll dwell in the land. And so a lot of people say, well, we've got to take that literally. Well, if you take the man David, literally, if you take the word shepherd, literally, that there's actually a shepherd, a shepherding sheep. Now, these are metaphors here. And even the New Testament tells us that Abraham was looking for a a spiritual country, a heavenly country, not a physical country. It says that in Hebrews chapter 11. So the land is spiritualized. True. The New Testament spiritualizes it and these other things, too. And that's how the, the New Testament writers took it. That's how the church took it throughout history. Now, what's interesting, it does say, I'll make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant there in verse 26. Well, that everlasting covenant of peace is the, the peace that is made between uh, you know, the Jews and the Gentiles in Christ. It says that in, in Ephesians 2. Verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both, mean Jews and Gentiles, one, and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile them, Jews and Gentiles, both to God in one body, through the cross. Now, so he has made peace with us through the, the new covenant. And in Hebrews chapter 13, which is you know, winding down the book of Hebrews, it says this in verse 20, Hebrews 20, 13, 20. Now, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in him, etc etc Now, what's interesting, it says the everlasting covenant, this is Hebrews 13, 20, that's the term that Ezekiel used, an everlasting covenant. It's the God of peace who makes this everlasting covenant. Well, Ezekiel called it the covenant of peace. In in Hebrews, it calls him the great shepherd. Well, that's in the passage. That's Ezekiel 37 is where Jesus is referred to the shepherd. There'll be one shepherd over them. In other words, the writer of Hebrews sees the death of Jesus as inaugurating this covenant of peace with the faithful remnant of Israel and, of course, whatever Gentiles are in it with them. So essentially, everything in this passage is seen as fulfilled now. When he says, my sanctuary shall be in their midst, my tabernacle shall be among them, well, that's us. The church is here in the midst of us, uh, in the midst of the world. And we are his temple. We are living stones built into the spiritual habitation of God. Uh, God dwells in us. So, I mean, all of these things the New Testament affirms to be true now. And not one thing in this mentions a thousand-year reign. In fact, the word forever occurs several times in the passage, forever. So, there's no reference necessarily to an end to this. And therefore, you know, that's why the church throughout history believed that these things are to be understood the way the New Testament writers understood them, spiritually, as fulfilled in Christ through his death, resurrection, and ascension to power. And he's now reigning over us. He's reigning over, he's the rightful ruler over everybody, but not everyone submits to him. Most are in rebellion against him, but he's still the king. He is reigning. He just hasn't subdued all his enemies yet. He could anytime he wants to, but he's giving them patience. He's showing patience toward them. So this is how I think we're to understand that passage and similar passages in the Old Testament, because that's how the New Testament writers did. That's how they interpreted them. That's how they explained them. Okay, let's talk to Ryan from Phoenix, Arizona ryan welcome
4: hey steve thank you my question is about deuteronomy 13 6 through 10. uh basically if someone entices you to worship an idol he's to be put to death by stoning uh old testament law Um, i have a buddy who sent me a screenshot of this text this morning and said he's not a believer and he said am i to take this at face value that god wants to or or ordains to stone people to death if they in that time worship an idol or a different god and i said yeah as far as i understand it that was the law at the time and um it all of israel accepted the law and he made the allusion to basically the fact that islam therefore is no different than christianity and or isis for that matter because um the standards of don't kill other people because they don't believe in what you believe is not being upheld and i was just curious to your um, uh, Old Testament knowledge about the context of that verse and the uh, perhaps the um, more reason behind it.
0: Yeah, well, the, the difference between that and jihad or, or Islamic uh, instructions to kill infidels is that the infidels that the Muslims are told to kill are people who are not Muslims. Uh, you know, pagans, Jews, Christians are all the infidels as far as they're concerned. Uh, this is instructions given for Israel to govern their own nation. Now their own nation was God's nation. God was their king. Now he, he wasn't claiming the, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Assyrians and the Philistines. This is the law for Israel. Now Israel was God's people and God was their king. To worship idols was, was frankly, uh, being a traitor. It, it was as being a traitor against their king. Now, traitors in almost all countries, if they rebel against their king, are put to death. Maybe not today. We'd have to get rid of too many of the people who are in power right now if we're going to do that. But, but the fact is, throughout history, it's been normal. You tr- someone tries to overthrow the king, uh, well, that person can't be tolerated, and they'll, they'll be hung, uh, or, or they'll be destroyed. In, in Israel, they'd be stoned to death. Now, God didn't tell Israel to go out and, uh, and stone all the pagans that were worshipping idols. That was everyone on the planet except for Israel. Uh, He didn't tell them to go out and kill the unbelievers. Uh, there are, there are wars they fought, but they were not wars punishing these people for their idolatry. Uh, they'd have to conquer everyone in the world if that was the case. They, they, they fought over land because God was giving them the land of Canaan. And at times they fought off enemies that were trying to destroy them, which all nations do. But this law requiring people to not worship idols or else face the death penalty was part of the, the governing law of them as the covenant people of God. They had a special relationship with God. They were his people and he was their king. And they had, they had desired that. They had asked for that. Now, under that law, there were lots of things people could be put to death for murder being one, of course, adultery being another, and kidnapping, homosexuality, uh, you know, bestiality, all kinds of things were laws that were made that they, that they were not allowed to tolerate in their society because these things were an abomination to their king. Now, the pagans all around them were doing all of these things, but Israel was not told to go out and kill the pagans about it. Uh, God let the pagans do their own thing. In fact, that's what Paul said when he was in Acts saying that, you know, God let these people live in their ignorance. He winked in their ignorance, he said in Acts 17, and let the pagans go after their own ways uh, until Jesus came. And then Jesus, of course, lays claim on the whole planet. He said, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. So he's the king over everyone. But he doesn't tell us to go out and kill anybody at all. This is a new covenant. That's, you know, his kingdom is not spread that way. But Israel was governed that way. See, this is not how they were spreading God's kingdom. This is how they governed the kingdom under God, uh, the people who would worship other gods. I mean, this was understood to be like a woman sleeping with other men other than her husband. It would be grounds for divorce, only more than that. In Israel, it was grounds for uh, capital punishment. Now, I'll tell you, some people say, well, that's pretty harsh, is it? I mean, you know, if frankly, if I were living under those circumstances, I would just say, you know, I know what I'll do. I won't kill people. I won't commit adultery. I won't, uh, I won't commit uh, sexual perversion. I won't, uh, I won't kidnap anyone, and I won't worship idols. Kind of easy, to, easy things to avoid if you have any interest in pleasing God. Uh, you know, and I would, I would, I'd fear nothing of it. Just like uh, even if I lived in a state today where they had practiced capital punishment, I wouldn't be afraid. Of, of being killed, because it's pretty easy to avoid those things that would bring capital punishment. And uh, so, I mean, it's not really harsh unless people say, well, I should be able to do whatever I want to, regardless what God wants me to do. Well, people like that are like they're living in another you know universe. Uh, what you, you think that you don't have to obey your creator? Where'd you get that idea? You know? But when people are sane and they realize, wow, the God who created me owns me and has every right to tell me what's right and wrong. It's not that difficult to say, well, I guess I won't do those wrong things that would get me killed. And uh, I have to say, Israel didn't, didn't avoid idolatry very much, which means they didn't have the slightest interest in obeying God most of the time. Uh, but those who want to would find it not hard. Now, your friend probably doesn't have any interest in pleasing God, so he'd find it difficult. But he's not in Israel, so he doesn't have to worry about us coming after him. We're not going to be killing anybody, you know. And, uh, and Right. It's,
4: uh, I think his, his opinion always tends to go to the idea of, well, his, his exact words were, not even an educated, kind, and moral human would say this to people, let alone a God, because it is a huge moral void to teach this.
0: Well, he's, here's what your friend needs to understand, but he won't. And that is that the whole of human history is the history of mankind warring against the claims of God upon himself. It's described in, uh, in uh, Psalm 2 this way, that the heathen and the kings of this earth try to cast God's chains off of them. And they want to throw off the authority of God. They want to say, cast off his bonds from us. And they try to overthrow his Messiah. Well, okay, that's that's the story of history, and your friend is deciding which side he wants to be on. So am I. I'm deciding what side I want to be on. Uh, you know, the, the history isn't. Uh, you know, history isn't is a, a story, and it has a beginning, and it has a plot, and it has an end, and it's a story about mankind's rebellion against God and attempt to overthrow God's authority. Well, that's a fool's errand if someone thinks they can overthrow God. Well, let them try, and don't let them complain if they get mashed in the process, man, because God's bigger than you. Now, I'm not saying you have to obey him. You should, but if you don't, God gives you the opportunity not to, but not without consequences. So, I mean, your, your friend's problem is this, and it should be probably put it this way. In the ongoing warfare against God's side and the rebels' side against him. We get to choose which side we're on. If we're on the side of the rebels, then nothing God does will seem fair to us, because we're against him. He's the enemy. But if we're on God's side, then it's very easy to see why it's reasonable for him to enforce his will on on his people anyway, and eventually on the whole world. But if your friend doesn't... See, see here's the problem. People who don't believe in God, or are not favorable toward God, are never going to be sympathetic toward God in the conflict between man and God because they're on man's side, not God's side. And that's what a Christian isn't. A Christian is one who has repented of that whole idea and said, wait a minute, this this world doesn't exist for me. It exists for God. Therefore, if I'm living for me, I'm on the wrong side of this deal. Living for God the only thing that makes sense. And by the way, it's the only life that's really quite fulfilled, too, in my opinion. I can't imagine a life that would be better than living for God. But uh, even if even if living for God was harder or worse or whatever, it's still the right thing. And people who don't know that are going to find out. And I, I don't say that to be snarky or anything. It's just history's going to reach its end. And uh, if people never knew what it was about. If ne- people never saw the arc of history and never complied with, you know, what that suggests, well, then they'll find out eventually. Uh, unfortunately, it may be too late uh, for them. Yeah.
4: yeah. Oh, last question. What, to what time period, or I guess the Old Testament law that this was how Israel was supposed, supposed to be governed, how far up did that apply to? Because I, I, I assume that, you know, now Christianity up, does not up, apply that.
0: Right, up until the time of Christ. That's the Old Covenant. That was okay. 1,400 years Mo- from the time of Moses to Christ was 1,400 years. Uh, Israel lived under the old covenant. Now the pagans didn't. So none of this, none of these laws in Deuteronomy had anything to do with the, the non-Jewish people, unless unless the non-Jewish people wanted to become part of Israel, which they could. They could be circumcised and comply with the law of Moses and so forth, and they could be they could share in Israel's blessings. But um, if they didn't. Well, they were exempt from the law of Moses, but not exempt from the ultimate judgment of God on the last day. Um, So, I mean, they would have been better off submitting to the law of Moses and becoming part of Israel, I would say. But if they didn't, they didn't have to. And and no one made them do it. But when Jesus came, he did lay claim on the whole world. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. And now, of course, that's our message. Our message as Christians is, yeah, there's another king, Jesus and everybody's required to submit to him. Again, we won't make you. We're not going to bring weapons and hurt you if you don't. That's between you and God. But he, he's going to judge you for it. So we've got, we've got a message for you, how you can come out better in the deal. Come over Easy. to God's side. All right. God bless you, Brian. All right. Let's see here. Our next caller in line is uh, Jeff from Kentucky. Hi. Thanks for waiting, Jeff. Uh, hi, Steve. Thank you for taking my call. Um, two quick questions. The first one, how do dispensationalists explain, since they are so that it's about physical Israel, the nation of Israel, how do they explain Matthew twenty-one forty-three in the parable of the vineyard where Jesus says that the nation has been taken from you? And he's talking to the Pharisees, which are Jews, taken from you and given to another nation that will produce the fruit thereof. Which to me that seems like we're that nation, which is talked about in First Peter two nine. You're I'm right. just curious. I'm not a dispensationalist, so I want to know how they explain that. And then my second question is this: Of all that you've been for
4: all the years that you've done radio and all the questions, the thousands that you've had, are there any questions that you are surprised that have not been asked? And if so, what would they be? And I'll get off. Thank you.
0: Okay. Thank you. For your second question, I'm not sure I could identify one that hasn't been asked. Uh, that surprises me. Um, I'm sure there's lots of questions that haven't been asked, but there's, see, there's an infinite number of questions that could be asked. I would say I'm not uh, – I guess I've been more surprised at some of the questions that are asked. Sometimes people ask questions about things I think, well, why would anyone care about that? But uh, as far as the questions that have not been asked, there's nothing looming in the, in the front of my mind or whatever of, that I think, boy, I wonder why no one's ever asked me this. Yeah. <laughs> no, my wife just made a joke I'm not going to share. <laughs> well, maybe I will. She said, the question I'm surprised no one asks is, how do I leave my estate to the narrow path? <laughs> Actually, somebody has done that. I mean, for the first time in 27 years, we got a notification that from somebody that they put us in their will. So that was kind of nice. Um, but your first question, uh, Matthew 21:43, Jesus said, Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, meaning the Jewish people he's talking to, and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now, the dispensationalists say the you doesn't mean Israel. It means the Jewish leaders because he's denouncing the Jewish leaders. And therefore, he's telling the leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, that they will no longer be in power. Uh, the kingdom of God is being transferred, the leadership of the kingdom, is being transferred from them to the apostles, is what they're saying. So that, that's what dispensationalists would say about that. And uh, But I would say about that, not so. Jesus didn't say... It's going to be taken from you and given to other leaders. It says it's going to be given to another nation. Another nation. So that it's being taken away from one nation and being given to another nation. So their answer is not very good, but I've heard them give it every time they deal with this verse. And, uh, but then when, you, when you're trying to not accept what the Bible says at face value, you have to come up with explanations that don't make sense. And that happens a lot, I'm afraid. Anyway, I'm out of time. I wish I was not. Uh, You've been listening to The Narrow Path, radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg. We're we're a listener-supported ministry. You can write to us at The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. Everything's free there, but you can donate if you want at thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk again Monday.
1: God bless.